Chapter 12 of Notwithstanding by Mary Chumley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter 12. Not even in a dream hast thou known compassion. Thou knowest not even the phantom of pity. But the silver hair will remind thee of all this by and by. Callimachus. The Dower House stands so near to the church that Janie Manvers, sitting by her bedroom window in the dusk, could hear fragments of the choir practice over the low ivied wall which separates the churchyard from the garden. She could detect Annette's voice taking the same passage over and over again, trying to lead the trebles stumbling after her. Presently there was a silence, and then her voice rose sweet and clear by itself. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. The other voices surged up, and Janey heard no more. Was it possible there really was a place somewhere where there was no more hunger and thirst, and beating, blinding heat? Or were they only pretty words to comfort where no comfort was? Janey looked out where one soft star hung low in the dusk over the winding river and its poplars. It seemed to her that night as if she had reached the end of her strength. For years, since her father died, she had nursed and sustained her mother, the invalid in the next room, through what endless terrible days and nights, through what scenes of anger and bitterness and despair. Jenny had been loyal to one who had never been loyal to her, considerate to one who had ridden rough-shod over her, tender to one who was harsh to her, who had always been harsh. And now her mother, not content with eating up the best years of her daughter's life, had laid her cold hand upon the future, and had urged Janie to promise that after her death she would always keep Harry, her half-witted younger brother, in the same house with her, and protect him from the world on one side and a lunatic asylum on the other. Something desperate had surged up in Janie's heart, and she had refused to give the promise. She could still see her mother's look of impotent anger as she turned her face to the wall, could hear still her hysterical sobbing, she had not dared to remain with her, and Anne, the old housemaid, was sitting with her till the trained nurse returned from Ipswich, a clever, resourceful woman, who had made herself indispensable to Lady Louisa, and had taken Harry to the dentist, always heretofore a matter difficult of accomplishment. Jeanie realised with sickening shame this evening that she had unconsciously looked forward to her mother's death as a time when release would come from this intolerable burden which she had endured for the last seven years. Her poor mother would die some day, and a home would be found for Harry, who never missed anyone if he was a day away from them. And she would marry Roger, dear, kind Roger, whom she had loved since she was a small child and he was a big boy. That had been her life, in a prison whose one window looked on a green tree, and poor manacled Janie had strained towards it as a plant strains to the light. Something fierce had stirred within her when she saw her mother's hand trying to block the window. That, at any rate, must not be touched. She could not endure it. She knew that if she married Roger, he would never consent that Harry and his attendants should live in the house with them. What man would? She felt sure that her mother had realised that contingency, and the certainty of Roger's refusal— and hence her determination to wrest a promise from Janie. She was waiting for her cousin, Roger, now. 
He had not said whether he would dine or come in after dinner. It depended on whether he caught the five o'clock express from Liverpool Street. But in any case he would come in some time this evening to tell her the result of his mission to Paris. Roger lived within a hundred yards, in the pink cottage with the twirly barge boarding almost facing the church, close by the village stocks. Janey had put on what she believed to be a pretty gown on his account. It was, at any rate, a much-trimmed one, and had recoiled her soft brown hair. The solitude and the darkness had relieved somewhat the strain upon her nerves. Perhaps Roger might after all have accomplished his mission, and her mother might be pacified. Sometimes there had been quiet intervals after these violent outbreaks, which nearly always followed opposition of any kind. Perhaps tomorrow life might seem more possible, not such a nightmare. Tomorrow she would walk up to Red Riff and see Annette, lovely, kind Annette, the wonderful new friend who had come into her life. Roger ought to be here if he was coming to dinner. The choir was leaving the church. Choir practice was never over till after eight. Her steps and voices subsided. She lit a match and held it to the clock on the dressing-table. Quarter past eight. Then Roger was certainly not coming. She went downstairs and ordered dinner to be served. It was a relief that for once Harry was not present, that she could eat her dinner without answering the futile questions which were his staple of conversation, without hearing the vacant laugh which heralded every remark. She heard the carriage rumble out of the courtyard to meet him. His teeth must have taken longer than usual. Perhaps even Nurse, who had him so entirely under her thumb as a rule, had found him recalcitrant. As she was peeling her peach, the door opened, and Roger came in. If there had been any one to notice it, but no one ever noticed anything about Janey, they might have seen that as she perceived him, she became a pretty woman. A soft red mounted to her cheek, her tired eyes shone, her small erect figure became alert. He had not dined after all. She sent for the earlier dishes, and while he yet refrained from asking him any questions. "'You do not look as tired as I expected,' she said. Roger replied that he was not in the least tired. There was in his bearing some of the alertness of hers, and she noticed it with a sudden secret uprush of joy in her heart. Surely it was the same for both of them. To be together was all they needed. But oh, how she needed that! How far greater her need was than his! They might have been taken for brother and sister, as they sat together in the dining-room in the light of the four wax candles. They were what the village people called real manvases, both of them, sturdy, well-knit, erect, with short, straight noses and grey, direct, wide-open eyes, and brown complexions and crisp brown hair. Each was good-looking in a way. Janey had the advantage of youth, but her life had been more burdened than Roger's, and at five-and-thirty he did not look much older than she did at five-and-twenty, except that he showed a tendency to be square-set, and his hair was thinning a little at the top of his honest, well-shaped head. He was, as Mrs. Nichols often remarked, the very statue of the old squire, his uncle and Janey's father. "'Pray don't hurry, Roger. There's plenty of time.' "'I'm not hurrying, old girl,' with another gulp. It was a secret, infinitesimal grief to Janey that Roger called her old girl. A hundred little traits showed that she'd seen almost nothing of the world, but he, in spite of public school and college, gave the impression of having seen even less. 
there were a few small tiresomenesses about Roger, to which even Janey's faithful adoration could not quite shut its eyes. But they were, after all, any external foibles, such as calling her old girl, tricks of manner, small gaucheries and gruntings and lapses into inattention, the result of living too much alone, which wise Janey knew were of no real account. The things that really mattered about Roger were his kind heart and his good business head and his uprightness. "'Never seen Paris before, and I don't care if I never see it again,' he vouchsafed between enormous mouthfuls. He never listened, at least not to Janey, and his conversation consisted largely of disjointed remarks, thrown out at intervals, very much as unprofitable or waste material is chucked over a wall, without reference to the person whom it may strike on the other side. "'I should like to see Paris myself.' Roger informed her of the reprehensible and entirely un-British manner in which luggage was arranged for at that metropolis, and of the price of the cabs, and the system of pourboire, and how the housemaid of the hotel had been a man. Some of these details of intimate Parisian life had already reached even Janey, but she listened to them with unflagging interest. Do not antiquaries tell us that the extra rib out of which Eve was fashioned was in shape not unlike an ear-trumpet. Janey was a daughter of Eve. She listened. Presently the servants withdrew, and he leaned back in his chair, and looked at her. "'It was no go,' he said. "'You mean Dick was worse?' "'Yes. No, I don't know how he was. He looked to me just the same, staring straight in front of him with his goggling eyes. Lady Jane said he knew me, but I didn't say that he did.' I said, "'Hello, Dick,' and he just gaped. She said he knew quite well all about the business, and that she had explained it to him. And the doctor was there, willing to witness anything. Awful dapper little chap, called me cher monsieur, and held me by the arm, and tried to persuade me, but— Roger shook his head, and thrust out his underlip. "'You are right, Roger,' said Janey sadly. "'But poor mother will be dreadfully angry. And how are you to go on without the power of attorney?' if he's not in a fit state to grant it. But Roger was not listening. I often used to wonder how Aunt Louisa got Dick to sign before about the sale of the salt marshes, that time when she went to Paris herself, on purpose. But, he became darkly red, hang it all, Janey, I see now how it was done. She shouldn't have sent me, he said, getting up abruptly. Not the kind for the job. I suppose I'd better go up and see her. Expect I shall catch it. End of chapter 12